Welcome to episode 142 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast made up of four of the most extravagant minds ever to discuss their passion for the best operating system on the entire planet that is Linux. My name is Noah, and with me today are my three other Lego maniacs of the Linux world, Michael, Zeb, and Ryan. Zeb, what have you been up to this week? Um, well, I've actually been doing some testing on the Ubuntu 1910 betas. Um, and I'd like to point out that it's really important to help out with beta testing if you can. Um, as the boys and girls over at Canonical can't possibly have every variant of hardware out there. Um, so get that testing done, please. Um, and I've also been testing Fedora 31 beta and Manjaro 18.1. Um, and I'm happy to report that they too are working just fine. So uh, curious, Zeb, out of all the ones you've tried, which one you think is your favorite so far? It has to be, without a shadow of a doubt, Ubuntu Mate. Um, Martin Wimpress wrote a little article about it being what he calls his papercut edition. Well, boy, if this is all that happens when you fix paper cuts, goodness knows what happens when you fix um, any major issues. And I have to say, their HIDPI implementation is the best Ubuntu has ever put out. So whatever it is they're doing, other distros need to go and investigate it um, because it is truly magnificent. Now, when you say that out of curiosity, because high DPI has been an issue that's happened for a long time. A lot of people have been complaining about, is it just the settings actually work or is there a specific setting you're using that, that wasn't there before or what makes it so good? Well, no, I, 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 again, I, I can't explain what they've done because I can't find the setting for it. But normally you can go in there, you can adjust the scaling on the monitor, you can in, adjust the scaling on the fonts, and then you open up Firefox. Everything is brilliant except for the Firefox um, menus and menu bars and stuff. But I think I think they might have taken a, a, a look at how Plasma do it because Plasma was the only one beforehand that scaled the actual... GUI of the window properly. So there's nothing specific other than scale your scale your monitor and scale your your DPI settings and everything just now works. Even I mean I always used to have problems with uh, QT or qubit torrents. And I don't know whether that was because it was a QT application on a GTK base, but even that now conforms and everything just looks even. It's really cool. Michael, what uh, excuses have you made this week for things that didn't work and how many OBS scenes did you have to create? Well, Noah, thanks for asking. It's and such a great uh, follow-up for that. I have a, a lot of things that I was doing this week, uh, including fixing all this OBS issues. Uh, actually, the, the thing is, right. I was, I'm actually at Ryan's uh, house this this week, and for those who are not listening or not watching the video version, uh, I'm actually at his house, and we had to do a, some, a lot of modifications to the OBS in order to, um, to compensate for his much larger screen, which is cool. Uh, but it did require me to do other things. And also, when I, on the way here, I was bringing all the different uh, assets that I made. I knew I needed to make. I put them in archive files, and somehow I forgot to move some of them to the drive, and therefore I had to recreate certain things on the fly while I was here. However, I think what I made is a little better than what we did have, so I'm I'm thinking I'm going to keep it for the next for the future anyway. So you know, there's there's that forced forced innovation. How about that? Uh, I'm glad to hear that Ryan was able to help you fix all the stuff that you can't do on your own. Um, that's not what I said, but okay. Interesting. Uh, interesting that you, you heard it that way. Uh, but anyway, uh, also I want to point it out that if you haven't, if you are watching the video version, you might be wondering why am I wearing a golden girl shirt? And that's because one golden girls are awesome. And two, uh, uh, one of the community members, uh, 
Keegan sent me a, a they sent this put a message in the Destination Linux Telegram group, and he put a picture of this shirt and said someone on DL should wear this, and I immediately said yes, I will wear that, and then he decided to send it to the to Destination Linux, and yeah, so here we go. I'm wearing it because it's awesome. It's just a shame well, he awesome. shows it to the week that you clash with uh, Ryan's green. I think that makes it perfect, really. <laughs> no, that looks well horrific. It it does go without saying your video is drastically improved. Yeah, my my video has so. improved quite a bit, I would say. Yeah, it's no longer a webcam; it's an actual camera, and that's uh, has improved. Mm -hmm. And I think I did a lot of effort and work to get that to be done. Uh, so yeah, thanks. Mm -hmm. hey, well, you drove three hours. That and, is, uh, see, you know, I did. That's problem. a lot of effort. Driving three hours yeah, is a lot of effort. Aesthetics of the rest of that room for you. So, yeah, no, that's good. Ryan, how was your week? Well, you can imagine how my week's been. Uh, Michael's been here. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got, we've been getting a lot of stuff done for the Destination Linux Network, which has actually been really good. So, a lot of things coming together, a lot of new ideas, and we've been enjoying that. So, a week full of Linux stuff until I woke up this morning and saw the pink golden girl shirt that he was wearing. And then I told him immediately after this podcast, he is to leave my home and never return. Yeah. But outside of that, I did, I did finish a really cool book this week. There is a book out by Edward Snowden um, called Permanent Record. So those of you who are into the whole privacy and security elements um, I'm not saying everything, of course, in somebody's book is factual, but it is interesting to hear his side of the story of how things went down and also some interesting facts because he did have, you know, well-documented clearances within the NSA and other organizations. Some of the things that have taken place with governments around the world, getting their fingers deeper and deeper into our privacy and security and how shockingly people just let it happen. And he even, Zeb, if you remember a while ago, you used to say this quote of, hey, I've got nothing to hide. And then you came back in later and said, hey, you know, after spending time with you guys, I got my tinfoil hat on. I see there, even if there's nothing I think that I'm hiding because I'm not doing anything illegal, this, this privacy thing matters. And he addresses that directly in the book, which I think is interesting because it's not just you. A lot of people feel that way. Well, I don't do anything illegal, so I should be fine. But he goes into a lot of information uh, regarding why even those of us who think we live the perfect lives and have nothing to worry about should be very worried about it. And he also brings up something that I find fascinating, which is prior generations, uh, especially after world wars and things, would have rolled in their graves thinking about the privacy, all the laws that were put into place when uh, especially this country was founded for privacy and, and being able to keep certain restrictions on the government, all of those basically being taken away uh, from us uh, little by little by little. So it, it, it's, again, an interesting read, not suggesting you agree with everything that's in the book or take the story uh, 100% for fact, but certainly it's an interesting parallel for those who want to uh, understand privacy a little better and some of the things that might be going it's on. It's possible that it's true is what you're saying. Exactly. I think there, well, some of it, I know, you know, 
that he talks about has been things that have been out there in the news and several sources have reported. And it's just interesting to understand some of the background that led up to some of that and other stuff, who knows if it's true or not, but I think it's interesting to listen to nonetheless. You know, my answer to that would be if the NSA were to come out and say, no, we've definitely not doing that. We've definitely never done that. And he's just making that up. Then I think there would be cause for concern to say, eh, but you notice nobody is denying the stuff that he claims, right? Like he comes out and says this excuse out, and there's like everybody's like, "You weren't supposed to know about that." Like nobody's yeah. denying it. So I don't know. It, just, it kind of feels like, well, you know, you know there was true, a lot of conversation it. about people wanting to ban this book. Which any time in, in 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 my lifetime, if somebody mentions banning a book, it's the first book I'm going to buy because I just to me that's like the ultimate step on freedom, right? Is taking away people's books, taking away material, that type of thing. So uh, there was talks about that, but apparently the government's no longer going to try to stop the book or they're not going to stop the book from releasing, but they are going to try to steal all the profits from the book in in, in any case. So um, apparently some rules or stuff that they quoted were broken by him talking about this. Although I will say, I think he did a very good job, in my opinion, of giving no super secret information. He wasn't talking about... Um, you know, specific agents' names or anything else in this. It was just in general things that happened uh, that led to the point that he's at now. So again, very interesting story. I definitely recommend those who are interested in privacy, maybe those who have the feeling that, hey, I've got nothing to hide. Go read that book. It might change your opinion. So Noah, what have you been up to this week, my man? I uh, I embarked on a on a rather extravagant project. Uh, I uh, as some of you know, I work for a um, a broadcasting company that does terrestrial radio, and they own twenty nine stations. Um, and I got to talking with my boss, and he said, "You know, radio has been is in over ninety percent of people's dashboards, so people definitely still use radio." At the same time, what we're seeing is that more and more people are going to streaming like services and content on demand. And, you know, being a being a major uh, company that is in the United States that does this stuff, we would like to participate in that. Is that something you'd be interested in helping us with? Because I understand you have some experience with podcasting. I said, yeah, this guy, Michael Tunnell, taught me everything I know. And so I would love to uh, I would love to participate in that. He says, all right, well, yeah, exactly. So he says, put together what you could do if you had if we were to pay you full time to do nothing else than to produce this podcast. We'd like to see what, what a really good podcast looks like. And so what we did was we started, I started looking around to find what issue would appeal to the, the vast majority of people. Because obviously Linux, it's technical and it's cool and we love talking about it and we love listening to people that talk about Linux, but it does appeal to a small audience. And so we tried to concentrate on stories and episodes that appeal to anybody. Anybody of any walk of life can listen to this stuff. And so episode one has just been released. It was released, I think, on Wednesday. The The show is called The School of Hard Knocks, and you can download it at schoolofhardknocks.show, schoolofhardknocks.show, or you can go into, obviously, Pocket Cast or Google Play or iTunes or wherever and download it from there. But what's interesting about the way that we've done this show is every interview is recorded in two tracks, and so we have the ability to go through and clean up all the ums and all the ahs and any of the pauses. And if somebody, you know, restarts a thought, that gets taken out. And so they, they only say something once. So it's a very clean show to listen to. The audio quality is just exceptional. Um, and then there's a story arc to it. And so every episode tells a story. And so episode one, it, it, is, a, it is a, I should mention this, it is a, I don't do vulgar content ever for any reason. I just don't, it's just not my thing. But, but 
the 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 show is catered towards and towards a mature audience in that the topics just wouldn't be interesting to kids. So episode one, we talk about alcohol and addiction, and there are four very powerful stories from four people different walks of life and how they struggled with addiction of some sort and how they came out better on the other side. And then their advice to anybody that may be struggling with addiction or just what you might want to know uh, going around in society where you're living with people that have, uh, who are prone to addiction. And uh, I learned a lot going through that journey, but that ability to take a listener with me and we can go together on a journey, kind of think of like the magic school bus for adults, right? We learn about a topic or we learn about a thing firsthand real world knowledge, not hearsay, the actual people that live and breathe this stuff. We, went, we go out, we talk to them, uh, we bring them in, uh, we sit them down, we ask them some questions, and we use that information to go find other stories. And, and everybody has a story to share, right? And it's exciting when we can bring those people on and hone it down so that it's very listenable for anybody. So I'd invite everybody to check it out, schoolofhardknocks.show. Again, you can download it any place you get your podcast. But I think it's one of the best pieces of production I've ever done. And part of that is because somebody gave me a paycheck to work on it for two weeks straight. So it was kind of great to be able to, to, to really dig into something and, and do something very, very well. And I think the end product really shows that. So uh, if you want to hear a teaser, there is episode zero, as we're calling it, is just, uh, it's just a short little two-minute clip. And I sent it to Michael and said, you know, here's, here's the kind of thing I was going to bring this up on, on Destination Linux. Is that okay? And he, he looks at it, he listens to it, and he goes, well, I want to hear the rest of the episode. I, I, it cuts out. The, like, I want to hear the rest of that story. And I said, well, I'll go over to School of Hard Knock show and listen to it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been a cool project and I had a ton of fun. And we're already starting on episode two. And that's, that's going to be a lot of fun uh, as well. One of, the, one of the things that we're going to work on, I'm not sure if it's going to be two or three, is um, marriage and relationships. And so um, being able to go out to people that have a successful relationship and have stayed married for a long time and ask them, how did you do that? And, 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 and what does that process look like? And maybe talk to some people that are in some, uh, some other relationships and ask them how, how they did that. And so I think that will be a fun journey as well. So schoolofhardknocks.show or download it wherever you get your podcasts. So what's cool about that is you're also using Linux to produce the whole thing. 100%. 100% all of the anytime we had all the in fact we went into the studio I, I it actually didn't start out that way I I went into the studio and we went to record something in Adobe Audition on Windows and I got about three and a half minutes into the interview and Audition uh, crashed okay we restart the computer try it again we make it two minutes this time Audition crashes so okay we'll get rid of Audition we went into some other recorder thing some basic you know thing that somebody downloaded off the internet run that crashes we go into the Mac Audition crashes. Like, you know what? <laughs> Went to Best Buy, bought a computer, loaded it with Kubuntu, did all the rest of the four interviews, no problem. <laughs> so it's Perfect. That's what I love I, to hear. I, yeah, I, I, you know, yeah, Linux top to bottom, all the editing was done on Linux, all the recording was done on Linux, all the publishing was done on Linux, all the graphics were done on Linux, everything top to bottom was done on Linux. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by... You guessed that DigitalOcean. Now, DigitalOcean, if you live under a rock, maybe you haven't heard of them, but the rest of us that work in IT, we use them all the time. They're the most developer-friendly cloud platform out there. What does that mean? What does developer-friendly cloud platform mean? Well, it means that all of their servers have live IP addresses right on the internet. So you can rent this server and immediately get access to their tier one bandwidth. And they got lots of backups too. So you know your server's never going to go down. Also, because it's virtualized, that means if the server itself crashes, the host crashes, they just move it over to something else and it's not your problem. You don't have to maintain it. You don't have to do anything. Your services just keep running. Developer-friendly means that it's designed for developers. They 
have many, many, many cloud agnostic tutorials so you can get stuff set up. I find people, I meet them all the time at conferences, they didn't even know what DigitalOcean what those tutorials did. And when I talk to them and I say, here's all the tutorials they have, they found all sorts of stuff they didn't even know they needed. It's kind of like Sky Mall Magazine for nerds. Now you can get all of this plus access to world-class customer service for as low as 50, no, I'm just kidding, $5 a month. Yeah, five bucks a month. If you can't afford that, I don't know what to tell you. Just buy one extra, one less big gulp a month and you'll be fine. Or you can use their flexible pricing structure. I use this for clients all the time. Maybe you just need a server to test something for just a couple minutes. Why would you want to pay $5 for the whole month so you can use a server for four hours? DigitalOcean's like, we don't want your money if you're not using it. So guess what? They're going to give it to you for, for 0.7 cents per hour. That's, as Ryan would say, darn near free. DigitalOcean offers, as I said, 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software languages and frameworks. Get started today on DigitalOcean, one month free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash dl. That's do.co slash dl. In addition to getting that one month free and that $50 credit, you're going to tell DigitalOcean that you appreciate the work we do here at Destination Linux, and you would prefer that they continue to keep us on the air. So we would appreciate it if you'd head over to do.co slash dl, check out some of those cloud agnostic tutorials, and find a server you didn't know that you needed. And a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. So moving on to the community feedback, um, Chris sent us a video this week, and he had this to say. Hey, Destination Linux. I just wanted to make a video to tell you all how much I appreciate all you do for the community. Having met each one of you, I can honestly say, if someone hasn't, they're only getting half of the dedication and passion each of you has for Linux and the community at large. I listen to or watch each of your podcasts and channels. Zeb, meeting you itself this year was an awesome time. You brought so much excitement to America and to the conference. Now you have me and my six-year-old playing the American Trucker Simulator. I hope you get to make it back here to another one real soon. Michael, I also met you at the conference two years ago. You're an amazing source of knowledge and passion for Linux and KDE. You almost got me to switch. Well, I have it on one laptop anyway. Ryan, I once told this to Noah, and I feel you deserve the same thing. Having also met you itself this year, your passion for Linux exudes out of every pore in your body, and it, it's an infectious disease. Noah, you already know how I feel about you. I admire what you guys do and what you're trying to build for us, your listeners. Keep up the good work, and thank you from the bottom of my heart. Noah, call me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely awesome. What an amazing video from Chris. Uh, I had the honor of meeting Chris for the first time at Self this year, and Noah, you've known him for a long time, but I immediately, he's just one of those guys that you meet, and you're instantly comfortable with hanging out with, with talking to, and just just an awesome human being. So much so that I spent half the conference trying to convince him that he needed to come on and do an interview in Destination Linux, Because, but he just kept saying, well, I'm just a regular person. And I'm like, that's okay. People want to hear from regular people using Linux as well. So just an awesome dude, and I really appreciate that message that he sent. Yeah, there, I've known, known Chris for personally for a long time. The other thing is I've had an opportunity to work professionally with Chris too. So he owns um, CTC Solutions, which is a IT contract company in the West Virginia area. And um, I have uh, we've worked with them numerous times to have them come out and they specialize in um, 
in wireless uh, IP links. And so one of the things that, that he is, uh, I mean, the guy knows more about wireless IP links and the people at Ubiquity who make them. And so we, we flo- flew him out here and had him subcontract a couple of jobs. It's been, I mean, the guy's work ethic, it's just he doesn't stop. He's like me. It's kind of great. Uh, so yeah, I mean, just, he, he just works nonstop. And so yeah, he's a great guy personally, but he's also, uh, he's also a heck of an IT guy. Yeah, and also on, on my way here, it was like a three-hour drive. I, uh, he, yeah, Chris sent me a message, and I was like, hey, let's talk about Star Trek. He was like, yes, let's do it. So we had like a at least an hour-long conversation of him, uh, we, us talking about Star Trek and why Voyager's awful. Uh, so that was fun. That was fun, and it, it, it occupied my, my brain. It is a little I mean, frustrating that he lies very good. all the time. Wow. I heard that he's also very good at taking wayward um, DL presenters back to bed when they've maybe had a little bit too much. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, you have to, if you want to know what he's talking about, you'll have to come to self uh, next year. Um, but also I want to mention there are two people Sorry. who run around self like crazy constantly uh, fixing things. And that's you and Chris. Like you'll see you running three, one way, three. Him, him running Jeremy the other. Included, Jeremy and Zach get included in that as well. Okay. They do equal well, there's, amount of there's running. two that I noticed running around constantly uh, because I was hanging out with you guys at your booth. But it, it, it's interesting because you mentioned him doing a lot of work with the IP stuff. So uh, he definitely utilizes that at the self-conference to make sure things run there as well. So just an awesome member of the community. Very much so. So Tom writes in, uh, hey team, I was listening to your, to your podcast, the last podcast, where you talk about a lot of hardware for Linux boxes. Additionally, I think uh, Michael touched on the subject of marketing in the Linux world. What I hear for the last 20 years is that Linux people should use their old computers or old laptops. You go back a few years to a time when Apple starts selling, selling iMac. I think the first version was the cases where they're the orange, blue, green, and you know those ugly uh, bubblegum iMacs. Uh, they didn't pack uh, old and slow stuff. They packed great specs with an amazing OS. Then they sold it at a solid price. Then you look at the comparison of the an ugly PC box, and it just in in with that you had the new Apple amazing white shiny boxes in that period of time as well. So new people don't want to buy. They don't want to uh, buy junk. They want to buy. They want to buy something exciting, something they can brag to their friends about, and. The, as a consumer, he says, I want a great machine with top-end specs, uh, nicely packed. I want to know and use good hardware, fast and with high spec, not always top-end, but, you know, really great and works well. It's not that I'd try in any shape or form to, to like, you know, get the latest and greatest computers uh, or, you know, l- even talking about like having older computers. But for sales to jump, you, do, you, you don't just sell something that no one is selling anymore so as old stuff. You have to, you know, look on the... Uh, the look on the the idea of making sure that the marketing of your hardware is also uh, a factor that you're t- talking about. So I think he's referring to the idea that there's a the very common phrase that people say of use you know bring breathe new life into your computers with Linux, and there's there's going to be an issue there because there you know people will take a consideration of something when the first time they try something they will consider it based on the thing they put it on. So I actually had an ex- like a perfect example of this. I had someone who switched to Linux because they wanted to breathe life into their old computer, and then they decided to leave Linux later on when they got a new computer. And their their reasoning was they got a new computer and they were like, "Man, Windows is so fast! Like it's so fast and, and like super. It's amazing in comparison to your Linux thing." I was like, "Wait a minute, are you referring to a brand new computer that you just bought two days ago?" to a computer that was literally falling off the hinges that was 10 years old 
and saying that the speed of Linux versus the speed of Windows is that that's that's the only factor there. And then they were like, oh, yeah, you're right. So instead of someone, you know, they had someone there to point out the flaw in the logic of a really old computer versus a brand new computer and Linux and Windows have really nothing to do with it. They, but a lot of people aren't going to have that experience. So when we talk about, you know, getting, putting on your old hardware, that's they're, they're going to make their opinions based on the hardware they're using it on. Ryan, isn't this a pet peeve of yours? It is to a degree. I mean, there everybody has different financial situations and they're obviously, you know, being uh, somebody who's big into the digital divide situation, the fact that Linux can run on older hardware and cheaper hardware is amazing. But I think the marketing for Linux has been done there, meaning we have talked about this as a community, as podcasts, as media shows, as individuals to death because that's all Linux used to be, right? It was the great, not all it used to be, but that's what the big selling point to a lot of people was. Take your old machine, make it new again with Linux. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's another side to Linux. It also runs fantastic on the latest and greatest hardware out there, which was a big motivation to the, the direction that my channel went. It was actually a big motivation to how I got into Linux. Aside from the privacy and security, which started me down that road, I looked at my computer at the time and said, hey, this is the latest stuff. Everybody, every video I'm seeing is all these old computers and that's fine. Will it run on the latest stuff? The answer is yes. It happens to run really well on new stuff. But I think it is, it's not like we need to lose that part of the marketing, right? I don't want it to go away. But I do think that people need to start talking about the fact that it can run on the latest because uh, while everyone's financial situation is not the same as we have new people coming in, they're bringing in their new hardware, they want to game, maybe they want to do advanced enterprise level or small business activities that require uh, higher end hardware or their new business kicking off. So maybe they have the new Epic line servers that they're building in. They want to know what Linux is going to work on this stuff. And I think it needs to be talked about more in the community. I also, to add to that, think that we need more things like System76, right, that are building like the Thelio, these beautiful, gorgeous machines that when we talk about at least the prior Macs before they started removing every port and everything was about just removing stuff, but the prior iterations of Mac where the fact was you went into a PC store, you didn't look at any of the plastic, junky, crappy laptops that Windows was making. You looked at the Apple with the unibody aluminum frame and the gorgeous retina screens because they were unlike anything else. Now everybody has essentially copied that. And honestly, I think some of the most beautiful hardware out there now is probably made by Microsoft, the Surface line, as far as aesthetic looks go. So I think we need more of that type of hardware creation where people are putting passion into it and building something gorgeous. I think System76 is doing a great job. I hope Pine and other companies also look at uh, adding in beautiful hardware because that is a draw to bring people into Linux on the desktop. Although I can't wait to get back to my, the, you know, the iMac era where they had the bubblegum iMacs. I think everybody should just go back to that. We're going to have this gigantic monitor that's this weird, like it's a boat anchor that you could have just color, like massive colorful plastic on it. I think that was probably their best era, you know? They go perfectly with your t-shirt. Exactly. You get it. Stay golden, Zeb. You joke, but back during that time, that was a considered a very revolutionary and beautiful machine. But today, by today's standards, it's quite tacky for sure. So this week in the news, we have our final release for the Linux kernel of 2019. 
I'm very excited about this. It's been an incredible year for kernel releases. If you want to know how the world is seeing Linux in a different way, look no further than all of the manufacturer drivers and hardware enablement and people who are contributing to the Linux kernel this year. And you will see that Linux is getting a lot of attention from massive organizations. And of course, all the beautiful, wonderful people who've been involved in it for all these years to this point. So uh, first, I think we should take the time to thank everyone who works on and contributes to the foundation of what turns out to be our favorite operating system on the planet. All of those who work on the kernel, you're amazing. Thank you for all the hard work that you're doing uh, to make it just so awesome. And to kind of highlight that, Linux kernel 5.4, which will be our last release, is going to include more hardware enablement stacks inside of it, such as Qualcomm Snapdragon 855 support, you got support for new AMD and Intel GPUs. Some are kind of speculating on this Intel, whether this may be their first iteration of a, a dedicated GPU that they're starting to build kernel support for, which by the way, answers the question, will Intel create their own drivers or will they dump the drivers into the kernel? It looks like they're gonna continue to do what they've always done, which is put the drivers in the kernel like AMD does, which is an interesting problem that we're gonna to have to deal with when it comes to non-rolling distros. Uh, Intel Ice Lake Thunderbolt support, FlySky drone receiver supports. We're getting a lot of drones and things into the kernel. By the way, this must be the fifth or sixth drone this year that receives support directly into the kernel. And I assume that is to do with either programming these different drones or adding different directions to them and or getting photo, video, uh, audio things off of these drones is what they're adding into the kernel. You got vert IOFS for sharing file folders between hosts and guest machines, window gaming improvements with wine and photon and FS crypt improvements. So a huge suite of things going into Linux kernel 5.4. But if you've been following this show and we've been talking about 5.3 and all the iterations before, it's just been this every time a whole load of manufacturers putting their drivers directly into the kernel. If that doesn't interest you, perhaps the new security feature called lockdown mode will be something interesting to you because this will allow admins to restrict access to kernel features even if you're using a root account. So there will be two modes, integrity and confidential mode. Integrity mode will keep users from modifying the running kernel and confidential confidentiality will also keep users from extracting any confidential info from the kernel. By default, both of these will be turned off. This is really for sysadmins and people who really want to get heavy into security, but for enterprise applications where you can keep individuals who have stolen, you know, want to steal credentials or anything else, uh, keep their, and maybe they steal credentials and get elevated rights, keep them from being able to do any damage to your machine. This would be some of the modes that you may want to try there. Uh, also, we have XFAT support going in natively and Intel, is rolling in code for USB 4.0 support for Linux directly into the kernel. We likely won't see the release of this until 2020, uh, but they're starting to build the foundation for USB 4.0 into the kernel as well. So to me, Linux kernel 5.4, huge success, awesome amount of features in it, really cool stuff. Yeah, I'm actually really excited that they're doing it. And I agree completely that we need to take more time to you know acknowledge all the developers and all the work that's been put into the project because it's the fundamental piece of not only the ecosystem and this show but just the experience we have as, as users because without the Linux kernel we wouldn't really have 
the ability to have an operating system that we you know uh, adore as much as we do and have a passion for it. So I think that's a fantastic point about we we need to you know t- take in consideration and take the time to it and let them know that we do appreciate all the work they're doing, especially with all the others all this new stuff they're doing, having the new hardware support and constantly getting in- improvements to various different things by even having improvements with wine and proton and all that stuff. And the new lockdown thing for security is like, we already have one of the most secure operating systems available because of the kernel. And now it's going to even be even better and have, you know, more control for the distributions to apply. Uh, and there's, there's some distributions already included some of these, these things prior. Now they're going to be built into the kernel, making it even faster. So that's just fantastic. So yeah. Uh, thank you so much for the kernel team for making uh, this latest release, uh, the, the last release of 2019, the best one so far. So up next in the show, we got an, uh, an, a bug, bug fix release from the Krita team. This is the release of 4.2.7, and Krita is a fantastic application for uh, art creation and painting, a digital painting tool. And this version is focusing on mostly reducing paper cuts versus adding a lot of new features, but they did do a, some features stuff uh, one of the cool features is the ability to have uh, the uh, this Krita on Android. So they're working on merging of the code from the Android port for the tool, which I'm very curious how that's going to work with having a Android version or just a mobile version of Krita in general, because that seems like a, a really robust application to be turned into a, an Android version. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and this, this inversion also includes uh, 538 changes and this is like with a, a over a hundred bug fixes have been uh, or no a hundred bug fixes have been opened in the last thirty one days, and they have closed one hundred and sixty two bugs that were previously open. So like they're constantly making improvements to the thing. And uh, there's also quite a few developers now in the in the, the Krita project with uh, this this particular release having twenty three developers working on Krita, which is fantastic to hear because you know a lot of people don't wouldn't um, wouldn't think that an application for this one specific purpose would have such a wide developer field or wide, uh, you know, um, amount of people contributing. And that is just awesome to hear. This team is also using the Coverity Static Code Analyzer once again with the help of, to identify, identify bugs and defects in the version. Coverity provides static analysis that follows all possible paths of execution through source code and spits out errors like resource leaks, and incorrect uses of APIs, buffer overruns, uh, error handling and many more things. Uh, so there's they're, they're streamlining their bug reporting as well. So some specific bugs that have been fixed were uh, not crashing when merging invisible group layers, improving performance, and fix crashes with multiple vector shapes as well, like such as like cropping or particular images and that kind of thing. So uh, Krita continues to be a very important program in the to the open source community. It's it's one of the top recommended FOSS digital painting applications and is actually I'd say it's probably one of the recommended painting applications period whether it's false or not because krita is that good of an app of a tool and is very very helpful helpful anyway i actually have uh started i'm just, i'm working on getting um a, some t- a painting tools to try out krita more uh in depth uh i actually i'm going to get like a wacom tablet or something because the latest kernel 5.4 has improvements to the different tablet hardware so that is something i can't wait to try out and uh yeah krita is a fantastic application uh, made by the kde team naturally and the application itself is so powerful and non-destructive. So that I love to see those in any kind of imaging to image editing tools. So if you are interested in doing any kind of uh, digital painting, if you want to learn how to do any sort of art on a, in, a, in a computer form, check out Krita. It's great. Yeah, just to add there with with Krita, 
their donations to this point, because at the time of writing earlier in the week, there was only six. They've gotten to 36 people. They've raised 392 euros. Now, that's about the cost of what one license of Photoshop there. So these guys have put a ton of work. If you look at the entire crew, which they have a picture of under donations in Netherlands that are contribute at a contributor meeting that are working on this project. First, a group of totally beautiful, awesome people that I love their faces because they're making a very important FOSS tool. But also it takes a lot to produce a tool like this and basically having only the money donated to equal one license of Photoshop for the month, I think is a shame. So I'll be donating to it. I hope other people consider it as well. If you use Krita at all, it's definitely something that, you know, give a couple bucks for and use the open source community to help support projects like this. So it can be developed on full time. They squashed 538 different, you know, or made 538 changes and closed 162 bugs out there that people have filed. So if just the 162 people who filed bugs went out there and donated, that would be a good start because they're out there actively fixing this stuff. Fedora has announced that with the release of Fedora 31, they'll be dropping 32-bit support and as a result, bootable images. Now, this is really an interesting decision on Fedora's part because we have a, a mixed crowd. On one hand, you have, let's be honest, there have not been 32-bit only machines in production for quite some time. Additionally, the vast majority of software is written to take advantage of 64-bit architecture. And so you have all of the, the technical superiority is with 64-bit hands down. Nobody denies that. That said, comma, there are still a lot of people that utilize older hardware. And we would love to be for everybody to go out and buy a brand new ThinkPad or a brand new System76 or a brand new Dell but that's just not practical for everybody. And there are tons of times where people as a hobby project to include myself, I could go and I mean, this is not to brag, it's just to give an example. I could walk into Best Buy, I could walk out with any computer I want, right? I still choose to buy really old machines that run either on PowerPC or even I have, I bought a 486 the other day at a thrift store because it's fun and it's fun to play with that stuff and it's fun to see what you can still do in 2019 and I enjoy doing that. And as part of that, we need software that is pseudo up-to-date that is able to run on some of this stuff because it's it, it, a lot of people do use this for hobbies. And additionally, there is some software that only runs with 32-bit libraries. And so what you saw when Canonical decided that they were going to pull support with for 32-bit, everybody freaked out. Now, there are two big differences, and people on social media have gone to point out that, hey, nobody's freaking out this time. Why is that? Now, there, there, are, there are two or three big things. The first thing, I think, and the, above all else, Fedora is not a staple distribution. Fedora is a hobby or a niche distribution designed for a specific audience that wants something very specific out of that. And I can say that with relative authority because I have been a Fedora user since Fedora Core 1. I do not, however, recommend Fedora to my 60-year-old mother. I do not recommend my Fedora to my 50-year-old mother-in-law. I do not recommend Fedora to my wife even. Um, it, is a, it is a distro that you, do because, that you use because you want to take advantage of some of the amazing technology that Red Hat is incorporating into their distro. It's not, I don't believe that it's really designed to be a mainstream distro. It's not really designed to be put in the enterprise and deployed over uh, 100,000 Right, we're not talking about Arch here. We're talking about Fedora. That's a good point. Right. So I, I just don't think that's what, what, uh, what 
Fedora is going for, but I do think it is what Ubuntu sells itself as. They sell it as Mac, Windows, Ubuntu, right? It's the third, it's the third alternative in the main operating system sphere. And so to that end, I think they have a responsibility to their massive user base. There are millions and millions and millions of people that use them. I think Canonical has a responsibility to them to continue to support some of that software. And as we discussed previously, it wasn't everything that we needed them to support is just like some basic stuff that we needed to, to exist. The second point of why people are not freaking out is guess what? Fedora is doing that. They are continuing to, uh, to keep the 32-bit libraries that'll support Wine and Steam and other critical 32-bit applications. The very thing that people got upset about Ubuntu. And so I, I, I guess as this discussion kind of unwinds over the next couple of minutes, what I would ask you to keep in mind is both those two projects have very different goals, I believe. I think they're catered towards two very different audiences and ultimately are held to two different expectations. And I would be saying this, I, I would I would have the same um, rash uh, criticism of Red Hat had they pulled something critical to the operation, a daily operation of, uh, of, of software that in Red Hat. If they were to do that, I would say that's, that's clearly a mistake on their part. But there's not enough people to continue to maintain this. It's not a high priority for most people. It doesn't really bite most people. And they're keeping the stuff that will keep the majority of software working. So I say, good job, Red Hat. Yeah, I don't even think it matters. I, I think your point, uh, you make a good point about Fedora uh, not being the, you know, the staple thing or whatever, but I, I don't even think that matters that much because uh, people were talking about how on Twitter and everything saying that, why are people not, where, where's the outcry for Fedora doing it? And the difference is because Fedora is doing it the right way. Fedora is getting rid of the packages that are completely unnecessary for basically everyone that doesn't use it. And 32-bit and hardware is not really going to be a thing that Fedora uses anyway. Like if you want to use Debian, if you want to use 32-bit hardware, you're probably going to need something like Debian or something like that. Uh, but Fedora... Right. You're not using no free. Yeah, you're not going to use any of the, the latest and greatest DEs and stuff like that. And you might be able to get away with it somewhere. I don't know. But uh, the main thing is, is that Fedora is keeping the the fundamental pieces. They're keeping the... Which is, is basically what every other distro that you know has done this process to 64-bit. Like Arch did this process a couple years ago. Uh, Ubuntu even did the process in 1804 where they stopped making a 32-bit ISO. And they well, no, I think they still had the 30. It was not, I think it was 1810 they stopped doing the, the ISO. But either way, the, the point is, is that Fedora is keeping the libraries that are fundamentally important for all of the problems that people were complaining about with Ubuntu because Ubuntu was trying to get rid of those packages, those libraries too. They were going to get rid of everything 32-bit. And that's why people got annoyed because if you got rid of every 32-bit, you're getting you're breaking a lot of workflows. You're breaking gaming in a just Steam gaming pot. The possibility of even doing that would be gone. Like that's why people got mad at a bunch at a Canonical and Ubuntu for doing it. And Fedora is not going to get mad. People are not going to get mad at Fedora because they're not doing any of that. They're doing the thing that other distros have already done, and there was no outcry for those either because they're keeping all the libraries. And uh, and, uh, and Ubuntu has announced that they're going to. You know the list of all the th the libraries they're going to keep, and so like this is kind of like an example of just the the ecosystem moving forward to 64-bit, but still recognizing that 32-bit still has its place and still needs to be there, and that's why it was a big issue because Ubuntu was going to get rid of all of the important libraries. Now they're not. Fedora wasn't ever going to get rid of all the libraries, and the and well maybe someday they will, but. In this particular situation, they weren't. There was no intention of them getting rid of those, 
So it, there was no need for an outcry. Moving on to some uh, hardware news, and this next piece of information came out just a little late for it to be included in the 5.4 kernel. Um, so Intel CPUs have had a rough year with mitigation patches, uh, but now we have some good news to share that will kick off in 2020. Starting in kernel 5.5, there will be code to optimize frequency scaling governors and that could improve the performance significantly. Um, so in a nutshell, the change allows the scheduler to know the full potential remaining of each CPU, allowing it to scale to its full potential. Now, basically, um, in, in, in English, to me, that means that previous code, um, let's say your processor was running at only 50%. The code thought that that's it, that that's all it had, and it couldn't then utilize the rest of the um, 50%. But thankfully, that has now been changed. So this could increase the performance and also the performance per watt. Now, once again, you can never guarantee anything like this, and they're talking figures of between a 10 and 40% increase, which almost gives you back what you lost with mitigation. Now, this is coming from uh, Michael Larabel over at Pharonics, and the information that guy provides is absolutely astonishing. There'll be more technical information in the uh, show notes that I can give. Um, but yeah, this has got to be good news. The only caveat is, again, one of my, Ryan's little gripes is that you either have to use a ro rolling release or manually update your kernel in an LTS, because they're always going to be about 18 months behind on the latest kernel. So that's one of the things you're going to have to work with, but uh, good news all around. So this is really interesting because I had a discussion in our discourse forum with an individual who actually was responding to one of your shows, Noah, um, in, in your show section on the DLN discourse, where you were talking about uh, CentOS going to rolling, uh, some of their rolling changes that they're making. And the individual was stating, hey, for you rich guys, that's fine that you want this rolling stuff for your new fancy hardware, but I'm on a budget. I can't afford fancy hardware, so rolling doesn't mean anything to me. I'll stick with LTS. This right. is a perfect example of why it doesn't matter if you're on the latest. Well, I talk about the latest shiny stuff and all the new things coming out because that's what's passionate to me. I'm a hardware guy. There was a really important point that I've been missing in this discussion, which is everyone who has older machines as well are missing out on opportunities by having these older kernels that take, to Zeb's point, between six to 12 months, sometimes longer. Even the hardware enablement stacks take between six to 12 months in between releases to come out, where these things are not being enabled and you don't have access to them. And this includes performance improvements like this Intel here, which doesn't just affect the latest $2,000 processor from Intel, but all of their recent generations of Intel lines. The Wacom tablets, accessories, printers, things that you're plugging into your machine, uh, and ARM devices, which are very inexpensive, $35, $20 machines that get enabled in kernel. So this is not just, while I personally talk about that a lot, this idea of having the rolling that CentOS and Red Hat and everybody is getting, Arch has been on, Solus has been on, everybody kind of understands this, but Canonical has yet to release anything, and I hope they do create a flavor that rolls. This holds everyone back from all of this stuff that's going on to the kernel for a long time, and that was fine for Linux 
back when it was a very niche product. I don't think it's fine for Linux today, and I don't think it's fine for enterprises who are looking to run the latest CPUs and get the most performance out of their machines to wait to six to 12 months anymore. I really think this is an area, this isn't picking on anybody, this is just a pure area of weakness where I think they're not watching distros that don't have a rolling option. SUSE is another one that has a rolling option, uh, Open SUSE. So, these are they're, they're falling behind. They're actually holding people back. Realistically, though, I mean, realistically, though, Ryan, when have you had a distro that? And I'm talking about in enterprise, right? Not, not, uh, not, um, not at home. But like in enterprise, when's the last time that you've seen the latest, like the latest version of CentOS, which is good for ten years, not run on a Dell server, or a Lenovo server, or an HP server? I mean. I, I, I understand where you're coming from if I ever actually saw that problem crop up. The only time I think I've ever seen that is as it relates to hardware drivers for like consumer grade, like the black magic stuff or video cards or, or stuff like that. I guess I don't see that really in the enterprise. The first time it's popped up is with PCIe 4, right? Any any enterprise level who is putting those into play, which would be pretty much everyone who's building out new innovative networks right now. Now, again, if you have a 10 to 20 year old network, sure, you're not going to have that problem, but that's not what we're talking about. We're about people who are expanding, building their network out from scratch now. You're not going to have PCIe 4 support in the older kernels. You're not going to be able to boot any of the uh, latest motherboards for the Ryzen uh, or Epic lines that are out there supporting, you're going to have issues across the board unless you have something where you're manually updating the kernel. Now, what? for enterprise, maybe Canonical, when somebody goes in there and says, oh, we'll, we'll get this set up and working for you behind the scenes anyways. So let me ask you something. Do you happen to know which kernel, uh, which kernel that, that PCI4 support came in? Uh, it was the early fives. I don't remember which one exactly. So not in 4.8, which is what's in rel eight. Okay. So I stand corrected. Then there are some limitations, uh, without the latest kernel and you're right. Um, the, the counter argument to that is if you're paying for a support contract, that's exactly where Red Hat's going to do. They're going to backport some of that stuff for you. But you're right. That, it, that doesn't really solve the problem out of the box. And it certainly doesn't help people who are running the community spins of those. Now, someone in our chat is saying UKUU is an option as well as Liquorix kernel. Um, I don't disagree that you can hack your way through it, but I just think, again, uh, you're, you're asking people who to come onto Ubuntu for the... One of the reasons why Ubuntu, for instance, is one of the most beloved and well-known distros out there is because you could pretty much on any machine guaranteed, especially when I was new, the reason why I stuck with Ubuntu is I'd put it in, I'd boot, and it would always work. I would try Fedora or something else, and the NVIDIA drivers weren't there, or something was missing, and I couldn't get the thing to work. Um, but if you have this scenario now where everybody else is having a rolling release, a new person comes in, plugs that in, and nothing's working, um, but now they go to CentOS or Fedora or Arch or Solus or OpenSUSE Tumbleweed and plug it in and it works, you're kind of losing your advantage there of being compatible with everything. Uh, UKUU is not a solution. I've also used that recently on a machine testing this out because I keep hearing it over and over again. And I actually borked my, um, my beginning setup with it, trying different kernels in there. So it's a great solution, don't get me wrong, but it's a hack at the end of the day. It's not something your average user uh, population is going to just go out there and utilize. 
companies are finally starting to react more to people and their consistent whining about privacy. And uh, so Facebook and Google and Apple have decided to, they're going to, uh, they're going to pacify you. They're going to talk to their marketing people and see how they can respin their marketing stuff to, uh, to make you uh, believe that they care about privacy now. And so uh, this week, Google has done just that and revealed some, I'm using my air finger quotes, privacy options to their users to attempt to repair the reputation and manage the government regulations in this area. So they have incognito mode for maps, password checkup features, uh, more auto-delete history options for YouTube, and three-month, 18-month retention options. Now, <laughs> I would be interested. What I really like to know is when they say 18-month retention options, do they mean 18-month retention that you can see it or 18-month retention that even they can go back and see it? While providing more perceived control over privacy is something of a start, we all know that essentially this is going to be worthless. And uh, there's some news that came out this week in the UK and the US and Australian governments wanting companies like Facebook to halt their plans for encryption. And this is something that I think is really interesting because when it comes to things that they can do behind the scenes, right, on the server side, hey, we're not going to keep these logs. We promise everything is secure and private. We promise we're not tracking the children. We promise we're obeying. You know, when that's that kind of stuff, they're all about it, right? And they're very verbose on telling you how great they care about your privacy and how in your face, you know, Facebook, I get probably an email every two weeks from Facebook talking about how seriously they take privacy and read our new privacy policy and here's our new privacy dashboard and here, you know, that kind of crap, right? But then it comes to actual privacy in that there's real end-to-end encryption through a protocol that Facebook doesn't control. And all of a sudden, they're like, hey, hold on a second. Now we said we cared about privacy. We didn't say we wanted to be locked out of your communication, okay? We just said we cared about privacy. We still need to be able to see what you're saying. And so now there's this pushback to end <laughs> this end and encryption. They want to kind of walk that back. And I think that's, that really tells you where the heart of these companies are. Because Facebook could look up to the federal government and say, hey, federal government, we don't care if you like or dislike our end-to-end encryption. Privacy is important to our users. We made a commitment, darn it, to our users, and we're going to honor that. They don't say that. They're like, yeah, you know, we really should revisit that because terrorism, bad things happen when encryption and things. So but no, that's right. You're right. I mean, that's how we lose all of our rights, though, right? The whole idea yes. is to create this fear, and you use something like children or terrorism, right. and you say, what that's about right. the children? What about terrorism? What if somebody's going to harm the children? Right. Would you allow that? Would you allow, do you want a terrorist communications yeah. to be encrypted? And then people go, exactly. Yeah. And then people go, oh my gosh, you're right. Like, I, how could I, how could I not be for protecting the children here? Have all my privacy that's rights. Right. And that's mm-hmm. how it and all starts. Well, have the privacy rights that matter, right? They're willing to go ahead and give you some stupid little checkbox that'll say, don't retain my data for more than 18 months or whatever stupid thing. But like, you know, the reality is if they had a track record of actually honoring this stuff, like let's say, for example, this didn't happen. Let's just say that these companies went into court and it came out that, hey, when they say that they that they only retain data for 18 months, that there's some sort of legal repercussions if they don't do that and they're getting sued right and left. And so when they say that, Matt, it is way too costly not to honor that. So they do. If that were the case, if that's the world that we were living in, this would mean something to me. But the fact of the matter is numerous times Google has come out and said, hey, if you have G Suite for education, we don't track the children because that's their children. So we don't track them. So just it's totally private. It's, we do that on other places in the free version. But when it comes to G Suite, if it's you're paying for it or if it's a school thing, and then what it comes out, 
well, actually, they do track them, and it was a mistake, and they're really sorry, and they're going to change it, and they've implemented a new privacy policy, and they've hired some guy that is going to oversee this thing. But the reality is they don't care. They need that data to fund their business model. And if they would just come out and say, hey, mm -hmm. we need your data to fund our business model, or you need to start paying us the $59 a month that every other service charges you to get the same thing that we have, I think we would all be a little more receptive to the idea of our privacy being violated because, hey, that's how we pay for it. The problem is they speak out of yep. both sides of their mouth. Hey, care about your privacy. Hey, we're going to give you the service for free. Hey, we're going to enhance your privacy. Oh, just kidding. We didn't do anything with your privacy because we needed to fund our business. Okay, that's that's mm -hmm. not. Let's let's the talk about is, the fact that there's actually something that Google is doing that everybody should love, and that is they're doing a password checkup feature so that they will scan all of your passwords in addition to everything <laughs> else that they scan, so they can make sure that you know that your passwords are now secure, that they have all of them in their vault. That is a fantastic I solution. Yeah, sure, sure, it's great. And, and, yeah, and the other Google. thing is as well, governments can pass as many laws as they want. And yes, Google won't retain your data for 18 months. They'll just give it to another company who looks after it for them. Um, so they have point. complied with the government's requirements. Don't keep the data for 18 months. Now, there you go, Fred, look after that, mate. I haven't got it anymore, Your Honor. But people are so ignorant to this. Like we're in the tech world, so we see through this. We're also in the business world, so we see the business speak. But your mass community, how many articles, I can't count how many I saw this week. Google's adding new privacy options. They're really meeting what the market is, is, is requesting here because now you're going to have incognito maps where it's going to be safe because you can go in incognito mode and the people around you, the businesses, they would normally pop up and say, hey, you're near Arby's, hey, you're near here, are no longer going to send you ads while you're in incognito mode. Meanwhile, they're not asking the extra question of, but Google's still getting that data, right? Which, of course, That's is right. probably 100% right. yes. So it, it's, it's a constant like, game. It's literally like saying... I would like a front lock on my front door. And Google says, here, we've shut the lights out. Now you don't know that the lock, the door isn't unlocked. Isn't that great? Like, it, just because I don't see the evidence of the fact that they're violating my privacy doesn't stop the privacy violation. So I, I think all these are great points. And I think we have now come with a, uh, we got a, a new episode title for this episode. It's going to be, that's incognito. Oh, gosh, what just happened? You know, we lost control of the show. So to bring us back around, Noah... What's interesting is in the news, they were talking about WhatsApp specifically, and there was a comment, and again, I wasn't there, so I can only read what the news article stated, that Facebook and WhatsApp were stating, we, already, we will provide requests, subpoena requests legally already to the government for turning over encrypted messages based on a subpoena. What we don't want to do is create a backdoor into our applications to allow those requests to, to be basically that information to be pulled anytime. Now, what kept hitting in my head is if it's encrypted end to end, how are they turning over WhatsApp messages? Yeah, they can't. If, it's if it's subpoenaed. actually encrypted, it doesn't matter if it's subpoenaed or not. It's not technologically possible. It's the same argument that iPhone users, that iPhone users are making back when that whole fiasco went out. It doesn't matter 
how encrypted everything is if Apple's private key is signed on the device and they can override the thing that causes the data to be destroyed if a pin is entered uh, incorrectly too many times. If there's only a four-digit pin and we know that there's a maximum amount of things and it takes, I don't know, let's just say six months to try all the possible four-pin combinations, but the, the security in there is that there's a feature that blows the phone up after, you know, I don't know, 25 incorrect entries, if Apple's private key is signed and the phone trusts update from Apple and Apple pushes an update that says, okay, now we have unlimited tries, that's not true security. If the private key exists on the device, it's not secure. It's the same thing I give, same example I would give with ZFS. People go, oh, I wish script ZFS on, on FreeNAS. No, you shouldn't. It's a waste of time. Why? The key exists on the device and anytime the device is running, the key's in memory anyway. You're, you've accomplished nothing. It's uh, it just... <sighs> So frustrating. I agree. So there's a really cool feature that's come out for our gaming sessions. So last week I discussed uh, and we had some conversation around the pipe dream of what if Sony coming after Mike went after Microsoft by releasing their game portfolio on Linux since Microsoft is now in trying to secure its game portfolio within Windows. While we didn't quite get that yet, the community did create a pretty cool tool out there. Uh, while we keep dreaming on that front, Chiaki, which is the only way I can pronounce it, it's probably butchering it, but it's C-H-I-A-K-I, brings us uh, a little bit closer to that dream because it is a free and open source PS4 remote play client. So how this works is you go into your PlayStation 4, you go under settings and you say allow remote play and you enable that. Then you download this app. It's going to search your network. If your PlayStation's on your same Wi-Fi network, find your PlayStation 4. It will then send a wake request if you want it to, to your PlayStation 4 and boom, your PlayStation 4 screen will appear on your computer. Now this is pretty cool for a couple of reasons. Number one, I can hide from my kids uh, downstairs in my office, say I'm working and still play the PS4 that's upstairs in my living room. Um, and <laughs> number two is if you want to stream PlayStation 4 games, for instance, uh, you can do that uh, by basically putting onto your computer. They can use OBS to record that and you could stream PlayStation. Now you technically could stream from your PlayStation anyways, but it's a limited amount of power, usually not as powerful as people's computers and you get issues with screenplay and all that type of stuff if you stream directly from your PS4 whereas doing it from a computer that's capturing that screen uh, would be much better. So they have a bunch of features they're also putting in the works, such as congestion controls, uh, error concealment, which H.264, different touchpad support, rumble for the PS4 controllers and all of this stuff. And probably the best part is you're not going to have to do some special terminal voodoo magic uh, to get this thing working. It's a simple app image that you download, install, and run. It is very simple to use. I would say the biggest problem I have, and Michael has been here this week, and I showed it to him a little bit, is actually getting the PS4 controller to recognize appropriately within Linux. But barring that uh, kind of voodoo, it's a pretty cool tool. Actually, I, it is pretty awesome. I saw him doing it, and I was like, okay, let's see if this is really what's happening. So I went up to check to see if the, if the PS4 was actually running everything, and it was, and it's awesome. But it made me think, is it possible now to do like a first-person shooter with like a mouse and keyboard on a PS4 then? Because it it might even be possible to do that, so you could take the the value of the PS the, the first person shooter with a mouse having better control and you know dominate against PS4 players. Then 
That's a really good question. I haven't tried that out. I will tell you that I know the key bindings work. I don't know if the mouse specifically does, meaning if I was at the PS4 menu because I was having issues with getting the PS4 controller to recognize properly, uh, I could use my mouse directional keys and it would go through the menu of the PlayStation. I also know that the PlayStation allows you to connect keyboards and things to it directly to utilize the keyboard and mouse. So you can do that. So that would be uh, it's probably likely you could figure out that interface option, but maybe somebody uh, who's a little more heavier in configuring that stuff can let us know, send us a message. Yeah, that'd be cool. I, I think that it's just the best part about it, I think, is the, the being able to stream with your computer to do this because it's it's awesome in general to be able to do, to play it, to play it on your system. It's kind of like a reverse uh, stream Steam Link sort of, and that, that's pretty cool mm-hmm. that they, that's an option now. And I think the best part about it is the streaming thing because there like there were a lot of weird workarounds that people were doing for streaming. And now you can just stream it to your computer and then stream it out to the web. And that's awesome. This is going to be great because we'll now be able to see how bad I am at Gran Turismo on the PS4. Um, expect some streams soon if I can work out how to do it. Perfect. So the spotlight this week is going to be John the Ripper. This is assuming, this is what I assume, it's a password cracker. So I assume this is what Google is using for scanning all your passwords because it's the only way it could possibly make sense. Uh, this is this is used by security experts actually that test password strength and distribute it as uh, John the Ripper and it allows you to test the strength of your own passwords. So you can uh, you know you can test you can actually run a thing to see like how long it would take for someone to crack your password based on this algorithm. So this, this is a pretty cool tool, but also you need to know that you should only use this tool to test your own passwords on your own network that could get a little um, messy if you did it otherwise. So uh, once you install it, you can create a test file from your uh, Etsy slash password directory, or passwd technically, but and and, they, and it'll do like hashes in that and run the tool against the file to see how long it takes to crack those hashes. And if you, if you purposely create a weak password, you can test to see how important it is to have a strong password set. So this is a really cool tool to be able to, you know, test to make sure that your passwords that you're using are powerful enough to not be cracked on like a brute force attack and that kind of thing. So yeah, so check out John the Ripper and that we'll have a link in the show notes. We all use cron from time to time to automate something, particularly if you work in the system administration role. One of the things is, though, cron is really designed for very basic stuff. I mean, certainly there are ways to create custom scripts and there are certain ways to kind of, I don't know, not really hack around it because it's kind of designed with that in mind. But um, it it often can be daunting to the new user. Well, I want to tell you about a piece of software that, I'm, uh, that I've started to use for scheduling. It is called RDCatch. It's part of the Rivendell suite and RDCatch is a scheduler for Linux. It's a GUI scheduler, so it means you get a graphical interface. You get a checkbox for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so no Googling uh, cron job. Uh, script generator and then clicking the the graphical things that you want and then generating a cron script that you drop in. You don't have to do that. Additionally, the other thing I really like about it over cron is cron cannot be scheduled to the best of my knowledge in increments smaller than a minute. And so RD catch allows you to schedule things down to the second. No, why would you want to schedule things down to the second? Because I have this bell system that has become more elaborate every single week. And one of the things I want to do is I want to play a notification. Then I want to go right back to um, a particular uh, internet radio station or a particular thing that I'm listening to or a music thing or whatever. And uh, I'm able to do that 
using RD Catch. It also has some advanced repeat and scheduling functionality. And so you can say like, for example, when my kids don't have school, I go into that day and I say, hey, don't fire the school bells on this day, but keep, you know, wake me up and make sure to still play my, my music throughout the day. And I have the ability to do that. You can also gang together shell scripts as macros. And so you can have like, for example, I have some shell scripts that will turn the lights on and turn on the bathroom heater and, and all of those kinds of things. And I'm able to gang all of those together into a macro called wake up. And I can trigger that macro either through the, the, the GUI They can just create a button and click on it and it'll fire that macro. Or you can access that through a CLI with a curl command or not a curl command. A um, it, it has its own uh, macro language, but you can send it through a CLI. And so I'm able to interface that into other boxes. And so I have a physical button. When I push that button, it cancels all of the alarms for the rest of the morning. So on the weekends, when I feel like sleeping in and uh, I hear my, my, my system kind of kick off, I can push a button and it cancels them for the rest of the day. And I'm like, all right, now I can sleep in. Or I can have another button that delays everything by one hour. So on like days like today, I still have to get up and do stuff, but uh, it can be later. And so I found RD Catch to be an incredibly powerful thing. It supports GPIO. So you can have, like I say, physical buttons to do things in and out. Um, you can find more at paravelsystems.com slash Rivendell because RD Catch is part of the Rivendell automation suite. Um, but I highly recommend you guys check it out. If you're looking for a really powerful way to do some advanced automation, I'm really liking this. So Noah, I have a very sounds important good. question to ask you on this one, because this sounds absolutely awesome, number one. So thank you for sharing mm -hmm. this. But number two is, did you use the sound bites I gave for your family to help wake them up and things in the morning? So up till now, in order to change out those sound, this is actually what prompted this. In order to change out those sound bites, I have to write new shell scripts because they have to trigger different playlists with the new audio files, which obviously is not ideal for a number of reasons. So what RD Catch allows me to do is you can generate a daily log, a daily, uh, I don't know, list of things to do, and I can have a different one. So I can have the main one that I use most of the days, and then I can have another one called Ryan's Funny Log, and I can use that and then substitute that in one day. So Cameras are set up, microphones are set up, videos in route. I can't wait, except next year itself, I'm going to have to try to dodge your wife throwing her shoes at me probably, but I cannot wait to hear how this <laughs> yeah. goes. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. We love our patrons and our supporters, so we want to give a special shout out to all of you for continuing to support this show. We do a live show for our patrons, so come join us if you want to be a part of it and see all of the behind-the-scenes goodness, hours and hours, as Noah will tell you, 8 to 9, sometimes 12, 14, 24 hours of extra content just to make this one show. It's incredibly ridiculous. You could join for just $1, and that's darn near free. And we also have several new tiers with additional perks to check out as well. Speaking of support, become a part of the Destination Linux community by going to destinationlinux.network. There you can join our forums, you can join our Mumble server, you can join and talk with people from all over the world that share your passion and love for open source software and Linux. Now, you can make new friends, you can contribute to the community, you can make fun of Michael. All of those come just carb launch as part of the Destination Linux network community. You can get involved in giving back to the campaigns for all of the destinationlinux.network website. If you want to chat about an episode or if you have some views or maybe you think Michael was wrong about something, we would love to hear that. Head over to destinationlinux.network and join one of those things. If you can't find a way to interact with us, then you're just not trying because we have made it really, really easy. And by we, I mean Ryan and Michael. But I digress. You should go over to destinationlinux.network and join our forums.
And also, uh, please remember to get back to us uh, via the old methods. So let us know what you think or ask any burning questions via numerous methods. Email at comments at destinationlinux.org, our Telegram group, Discord, Twitter, Mastodon, and other ways that Michael have, will tell you about at destinationlinux.org forward slash contact. So please keep those questions and comments coming. We love to read them and hear about the ways that we can improve the show. Finally, don't forget to join our Mumble server, chat with the community, set up gaming sessions, and enjoy networking. And if you want more, the, con the content doesn't stop here. We also have our own shows and channels, so you can go check out Ryan on youtube.com slash dosgeek, where he'll fill your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can check out Zeb at youtube.com slash Boss. Or you can find him playing games for Zebedee Gaming YouTube channel, where he, he might even do Jintu uh, streams as well. And uh, be sure to check it out if he does set up the Gran Turismo stream. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, you can find my content at TuxDigital.com, where I do an in-depth weekly GNU's, Linux GNU's podcast about, uh, called This Week in Linux and other Linux-related content. And you can find uh, Noah at AskNoahShow.com, where he hosts a weekly talk radio show at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. You can join him, and he'll answer all your Linux and tech questions. And also, maybe even that, check out his uh, other the other podcast he just talked about earlier this this episode, uh, the School of Hard Knocks dot show. And uh, yeah, so check out all that stuff, and be sure to uh, like this, like that smash button, and share the show on social media. Everybody have a great week, and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. But just so you know, Google Maps will be following you. Thanks, everyone. Stay golden. Bye-bye.